Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. On February 13th, 2017, Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, was assassinated in broad daylight at the Kuala Lumpur airport. Assassins, a documentary by Ryan White, tells the story of the murder and follows the trial of the two young women who were arrested for the crime. The film, which is equal parts international political intrigue and true life legal thriller, will be available in select theaters on December 11th and then available on demand on January 15th next year, 2021. I'm delighted to welcome Ryan White to our show now. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Now, this was a major international story. Why do you think it didn't get uh, more coverage in the American press when it happened? Yeah, so this assassination happened in February 2017. So if you look back at that, which feels like a previous world um, at this point, um, that was Trump's first full month in office. So, you know, he had just been inaugurated and the American airwaves, understandably, were being totally dominated by by the new president. And therefore, I think what would have normally been a top news story that would have lasted for months, you know, this is probably one of the biggest political assassinations of our lifetimes and definitely um, one of the most spectacular, um, very quickly dissipated. Um, you know, I think even for me personally, I remember the headline and thinking like, oh, my God, two, two female assassins, um, you know, and it's just assuming that they were a part of the North Korean regime when this assassination happened. Um, and then I don't remember anything else about the story. And so that was kind of my entry point to was what happened to those women and why did they do this? And, you know, I think that's really what our film is trying to get uh, to the center of. So what got you working on the story? Uh, and, and when you started, did you realize it was going to turn out to be as complex as it is? No, like like any documentary, you know, it kind of just begins with a with a phone call or a meeting and some, suddenly something has snowballed into a film. So. Um, in 2017, I had made a series for Netflix called The Keepers, which was, um, you know, a very popular series that year that was a true crime centered series about the murder of a nun in Baltimore and um, child sex abuse. And, um, you know, it, it had done very well. And so at the end of 2017, I got a phone call from a journalist who had just recently written an article about the assassination of Kim Jong-nam. And uh, more specifically, he had focused on Siti Aisha, who is an Indonesian woman who had uh, been one of the two assassins. And he had done a deep dive um, into her past and traced her entire path leading up to this moment that she assassinated Kim Jong-nam in the Kuala Lumpur airport by wiping a chemical weapon on his face. And the article was in GQ. It was wildly popular. And the journalist, his name is Doug Bot Clark, he called me and said, you know, all of these filmmakers are trying to option this article from me. I saw your series, The Keepers. I was wondering if you would just jump on the phone with me. So my producer, Jess Hargrave, and I jumped on the phone with him. The story was so literally unbelievable. You know, we did not believe it when we, he told us what had happened, that these women were claiming they were tricked, that they thought they were on a reality show um, when they did it. And we got off of the phone. Jess called me and said, I think we need to throw our hat in the ring to make this film. And three weeks later, I was on a flight to Malaysia with Doug, meeting all of his undercover sources and having my 
eyes opened in a way that I never, I'm a, I'm a total skeptic. So having my eyes opened in a way, in such an extreme way that like perhaps these women are actually telling the truth, that they were tricked into this assassination. Well, let's go back a bit uh, and talk a bit about the man who was assassinated, Kim, Kim Jong-nam. Wasn't he Kim Jong-il's oldest son? Yes. So Kim Jong-il's oldest son is Kim Jong-nam. Kim Jong-un is, is 10 years younger than him. And they were they had different mothers. So they were raised con- completely separately. They did not know one another. And Kim Jong-nam, um, they were both educated in Switzerland, but, but in separate cities and at separate times. And, you know, so there's a very sort of Game of Thrones-esque, um, somewhat soap opera-ish angle to this film, I would say, which was, um, you know, competing stakes at the throne. And Kim Jong-un's mother is often seen as the more calculating mother that always wanted her son um, to inherit the throne. And, um, you know, we, we go into this in the film, but Kim Jong-nam had been living in exile for, for a long time. He was not living in North Korea anymore um, after his father died. And, you know, he was um, definitely always going to be a threat to his younger brother. You know, he was the oldest son. He had what they call the Mount Pekchu bloodline, um, which is the bloodline um, that, 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 tr- that traces to the, you know, the mythological beginning of all Korean people on the, on the top of Mount Pektu, where Kim Jong-il was supposedly born. So Kim Jong-nam was the only person in the world who had that, who had that stake as well to the, to the role that his brother played. And Kim Jong-nam was often seen as more um, Western-leaning in his, in his political philosophies. And in fact, in the years prior to his assassination, had publicly been questioning whether hereditary succession should even be a thing in, in North Korea and saying things like, you know, I hope the North Korean people have a better life one day. So even the things he was saying publicly were, were threatening his brother. Um, so people and then often, he did things that uh, caused trouble, like he had taken his family to Tokyo to visit Disneyland, and that was considered a terrible thing in North Korea? Yeah. Which, which is what led to his exile. It was considered a total embarrassment to North Korea. You know, it was a very innocent, innocuous thing that Kim Jong-nam was doing. He was trying to take his toddler son to, to Disneyland in Tokyo, but he was caught with a fake passport going in. And it was, it was a huge uh, embarrassment to North Korea because what's more American than Disneyland, you know? And so it was their arch rival's emblematic company that he was visiting. And people often actually wonder whether Kim Jong-un's mother had actually tipped off the Japanese police to Kim Jong-nam's arrival as a way to publicly embarrass him and ensure that her son uh, would inherit the throne. Now, Kim Jong-nam wasn't even living in Korea when he was killed, but in the Chinese special administrative region of Macau. Why there? Well, because China and North Korea have good relations. So, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty much North Korea's only, only longstanding ally. And so uh, Kim Jong-nam was, re- was living a relatively independent life in Macau. You know, he was, he was no saint himself. You know, Macau has a huge a casino gambling industry, and Kim Jong-nam um, was a part of that. But he was living, you know, in some ways considered under the protection of China, which was also a huge threat to Kim Jong-un because, you know, if there were ever, you know, an attempt at overthrowing um, the Kim Jong-un's regime, 
Kim Jong-nam would always be there as a potential new leader to North Korea. And so the fact that he was living um, in a Chinese territory made sense, but it also made him that much more of a threat. Um, and likewise, Kim Jong-nam's ties to the American government, which we explore in the film, mm-hmm. also made him extreme threat. You know, in the film, um, we show how Kim Jong-nam was, in fact, a CIA informant. And um, he was in Malaysia at the time to meet with a CIA agent. Yes. So he was he had visited an island called Langkawi uh, in the days prior to his death, meeting with an American Korean CIA agent um, in that island. And he was on his way back from that meeting with the CIA, passing through the Kuala Lumpur airport when he was assassinated. So many people wonder whether that timing, you know, we know the Malaysian government was tracking those meetings that Kim Jong-nam was having. We can assume the North Korean government was as well. So many people wonder um, if that meeting finally led to his death, if he had finally um, taken it too far. Because when he was when he was found dead, he had uh, $138,000 in cash on him, which, pres- mm. which presumably was some payment um, for the information that had been exchanged. And he had a laptop on him that uh, that had, had just recently had information downloaded from it. So perhaps whatever happened in that meeting finally led to North Korea uh, pulling the trigger, so to speak, on the assassination. Well, he, did the CIA uh, consider him a valuable resource? Did he have knowledge of the inner workings of the Kim family? Did he still have contacts in North Korea that would have made him a valuable resource? He still had contacts in North Korea, for sure, even though he was living in exile. But you know, your, your guess is as good, of my, as good as mine on what that information was. But, you know, in the film, we interview Anna Fifield, who wrote the, the amazing book last year called The Great Successor. And she's, you know, one of the leading and most predominant journalists on, on Kim Jong-un. And as she says, for the CIA, uh, North Korea is the blackest of black holes. It's the country and the regime that the CIA knows the least about. So the idea that they could get access to the supreme leader's brother and turn him into a CIA operative would be the biggest coup that they could probably ever have. And so what the information Kim Jong-nam had, I don't know, but the idea that he would be an American informant would right away seal his fate in the the eyes of Kim Jong-un. Now, this was before Kim Jong-un and uh, President Donald Trump uh, established their kind of love affair. Uh, uh, He was, uh, I guess he was already an informant uh, when Barack Obama was president. But did uh, Trump, the Trump administration respond to the assassination at all? Well, it's interesting to see how the assassination was responded to, because one would expect with such uh, uh, an international spectacle of an assassination that that all world leaders would come out and condemn it right away. And the, the Trump administration did take action. There were a few extra sanctions. They canceled a meeting that was supposed to happen um, with North Korean operatives. But very little actually happened to North Korea as a result of this political assassination, minus more than a few slaps on the wrist. You know, and in, in our film, we really examine the relationship between Malaysia um, and North Korea because they have a good working relationship. And Malaysia seemed hell-bent on the, from, the, from the very beginning to ignoring uh, North Korea's role in this assassination. But 
If you look at the history of Trump and Kim Jong-un when it comes to this assassination, sort of the most glaring example is when Anna Fifield published her book and the story that Kim Jong-nam had been a CIA operative came out. Uh, Trump said publicly on camera, we have a clip of it in the film, that that would have never happened under his auspices. And so, you know, we've seen time and time again during the Trump presidency um, that sort of friction with his intelligence agencies and often him throwing um, the American intelligence agencies under the bus. And that was considered one of the most glaring examples of that, that Trump was saying on camera to Kim Jong-un, I would have never done that if I had been in control. And essentially, your secrets are safe with me. You know, you, you would presume that American president would take pride in having um, such a such a key source uh, into the North Korean regime. But Donald Trump was saying, if I had been in charge, that would have never happened. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm speaking to Ryan White about his latest film, which is called Assassins. And as you pointed out, on the day he was killed, he was walking through the Kuala Lumpur airport to catch a flight back to Macau when two young women ran up to him, rubbed a nerve agent called VX on his face. What is VX? Is, uh, is it considered a, a chemical weapon? Yes. So VX is a chemical weapon. It's often considered the most lethal chemical weapon. Literally one drop can kill someone. So it's a highly banned substance. You know, only the most powerful governments have access to to VX. And it's not something that, you know, your average citizen can cook up. So this was one of the only times that VX was used um, was used in a, in a in a murder against a civilian. You show security footage of the incident. Were you given access to it by the police in Kuala Lumpur? Yeah, I mean, so I think the biggest boon in our filmmaking was getting access to the thousands of hours of CCTV footage from the airport on the day of that assassination. And in fact, not only on the day of the assassination, but the days prior and the days after where you can watch uh, the plan being orchestrated by by the North Korean spies and by the by the two female assassins. Um, and so, you know, I can't, I can't say exactly how we got that footage, but I will say that was our biggest job in making this film was taking those thousands of hours and piecing them together. It's almost almost like watching a video game and having to figure out, you know, you're watching raw footage from a, a massive international airport that tens of thousands of people are passing through um, and figuring out who those people are from day to day, you know. And, and it's kind of blurry. Airport. So it must that must have made it even a little more difficult. Yeah. And that's why we use graphics in the films, you know, because it's also very sort of pixelated footage. And there's also thousands of people in the shot because it's an airport. And so. Uh, we kind of graphically take the audience into that that world in the film to sort of highlight the people that they should be watching or or the way that it went down. Now, in that footage, we see these two young women come up behind him, put their hands over his eyes. Was that the actual murder? Yes. So the and did he die right away? He died within an hour. So. Hmm. The women came up, the women claim that they didn't even know one another, 
You know, they claimed that they were recruited by separate North Korean teams that they thought were Japanese YouTube producers. And so they weren't even together in the airport that morning. They were on separate sides of the airport. So the women come up one after one another. The first woman that comes up is Siti Aisha, the Indonesian woman. She puts her hands over his eyes, kind of in a peekaboo type of way, and she runs away. And seconds later, Duan Thi Huang, the Vietnamese woman, comes from the other side. She's wearing a, sh- a sweatshirt that says LOL on it. So she was often seen as this brazen assassin, kind of kind of mocking her victim. Um, she comes up, rubs his eyes in a peekaboo type of way, and she runs away. And within minutes, within seconds, you'll feel the effects of VX. Um, but within minutes, Kim Jong-nam realized what's happening to him. He starts losing control of his physical capabilities. He starts limping. He, he approaches uh, police officers in the Kuala Lumpur airport. They lead him down to a clinic, and uh, within an hour, he has died uh, in that clinic. He starts having seizures, uh, and his body gives out. So, uh, you know, from beginning till end, I think it's 45 minutes from the moment his eyes are touched till the moment he dies. Now, why weren't the uh, young women affected? Well, this is the big question, is were the women... Were they wearing uh, gloves? No, the women did it with their bare hands. And so if you believe their story, they say that they had been on a prank show for months playing the same peekaboo prank on people um, and that the substance used was Johnson baby oil. That that every time the North Korean operative, who, like I said, they thought was a Japanese producer, would squirt some Johnson baby oil in their hand before they would uh, run up and play this prank. And... Clearly, it wasn't Johnson baby oil on the day the assassination mm. was played. But what the women had been somewhat taught to do, and we can prove this through text messages we have between them and the North Korean operatives, is that they had been taught to, to wash their hands uh, of the Johnson baby oil immediately after the prank because they were going to go out and play more. And so VX is an extremely lethal substance. But if it's washed off your hands before it ever touches an orifice, then you can survive that. And so the women, when they ran off from Kim Jong-nam, ran directly to a uh, bathroom, which is often used as behavior that, that the Malaysian government was saying showed their guilt, and they washed their hands. Meanwhile, they had rubbed Kim Jong-nam's eyes, and so it was entering his bloodstream as they were washing it off their hands. And so that's what most chemical experts Day is the reason the women survived, but Kim Jong-nam died so fast. You follow their stories. Duan Ti Hong had gone to university in Hanoi and studied accounting, but couldn't find a job. And she was waitressing, but she aspired to be an actress. And uh, is that what led her into this plot? Yeah, our sort of guiding star all along when we were making this film, because we knew there was a huge geopolitical web that surrounded this film. And understandably, there is a massive fascination um, with the North Korean regime and specifically with the Kim dynasty. And we knew that those parts, the geopolitical parts and the Kim dynasty parts were always going to have to be a part of the film to give people the big picture. But our guiding star all along was, who are these two women? Like, whenever we felt like we were getting too political or too wrapped up in the web. That's what we were always asking in the editing room. Like our major question is, where did these two women come from and what led them to this moment that they assassinated someone? Because Mm -hmm. the women 
were never denying that they assassinated someone. They, they confessed right away, like, yes, that was me, and yes, I did that. I just didn't know what I was doing. So of utmost importance to us was to find out who they were. And so that's what the film does. It traces both of their pasts, which are very different. So Duan Ti Huang, the one you're speaking of, was from a village outside of Hanoi. She was educated. You know, she had been to college and was, was a highly educated woman, but that wasn't using her degree, um, was instead seeking um, a, a, a lifestyle of fame. She had been on Vietnam Idol. She was modeling. She was a part of prank shows in Hanoi, like you said, she was waitressing to pay the bills, but she was she was desperately seeking fame. And so when this opportunity was presented to her, which we trace in the film, which happens in a little bar in Hanoi where someone approaches her with the idea that she can be on a prank show in Japan that where she'll be able to travel internationally outside of Vietnam, it was a very and make a lot of money, by the way. They were paying these women well compared to what they make. It was very appealing to her uh, to seek that opportunity. And, and Siti Aisha uh, was from a small village in Indonesia, but how did she wind up in Kuala Lumpur? Yeah, so Siti's story is, is very, very different. Both of the women's trajectories are very different, although they end up in literally the same place. Meeting what they both have in common is they're rather attractive. They're young yeah, and pretty. I mean, I, yeah, and they're both... I think, like we always say, like any 20-something-year-old woman in the world, I think it's easy to otherize them. And I think it was very easy to do that at the beginning when there was all of this attention around two, you know, femme fatales and one of them wearing an LOL sweatshirt. But once you get to know them, you know, and I've made films all over the world, and now that I know these two women, they're just like, they're just like most 20-something women all around the world. And Often that is, um, you know, especially coming from the third world, seeking a better life. So Siti Aisha, like you said, is from a village um, outside of Jakarta. She was only schooled until sixth grade. So whereas Duan had a college degree, Siti had to leave school in sixth grade and go into the sweatshop industry. She was a single mother. She was constantly trying to make ends meet um, and always trying to seek a better life and more money for her son. And that led her to moving to Malaysia. So Malaysia, you know, is a much more, um, especially Kuala Lumpur, is a luxury city compared to the sweatshop industry in Jakarta. Uh, and so she ended up in Kuala Lumpur with this promise of a better job. And what often happens, as, as, as happens, you know, with trafficking all around the world, is when these women come to these, these luxury cities, they end up, um, being exploited, and she ended up in the underbelly of Kuala Lumpur, where all the promises made to her were empty promises, um, and she ended up in the world of sex work. And so we trade so-called masseuse. Until, exactly, and up until the moment, you know, she's recruited. She's in that world. She was recruited at a bar called the Beach Club in Kuala Lumpur, that's known as a bar where expats, wealthy expats, uh, go to find sex workers. Uh, and a taxi driver approached her while she was outside of the bar and said, you know, I have I have a, a job for you. And it doesn't involve sex work. It involves just doing doing prank videos. Would you be interested in meeting these guys that approached me last night? And so, you know, if you believe Sissy, of course, uh, of course, she would take that opportunity. And, you know, she met what she thought were Japanese YouTube producers and she started getting paid 
$96 per prank. And this was a woman who was making maybe 5 to $10 a day. Uh, and she was being filmed and she was being flown around all around Southeast Asia, seeing parts of the world she had never seen. So for her, she was sending money back home to her family and she was getting an experience that she had never had in her entire life where she was being treated uh, like she was important, like she was famous. You mentioned that you gained access to screenshots of their texts and social media posts. I'm assuming they gave that to you. And uh, do you think you could have put this all together if you hadn't been able to use them to piece together their stories? No, absolutely not. Because I don't think, you know, the whole film is questioning, are these women trained assassins or are mm. they innocent pawns of North Korea and they were tricked? And without being able to examine, forensically examine all of their backstory, like all of the things that would that would expose someone's guilt, you know, the digital imprint, all of their text messages with the North Korean operatives, all of their flight paths, all of their all of their WhatsApp messages. Without being able to do that, I think we as filmmakers would have still not known the answer on are these women guilty or are, were they tricked? And that didn't come from the women themselves because the women were on death row the entire time they were in Malaysia and we were following their trials. So we didn't have access to the two women. It was a very strange film to make in that type of way where my main subject, I did not know them. I never met them. I saw them enter the trial every day in bulletproof vests surrounded by AK-47s, but I never got to say hello to them. All of that information came from their legal teams. So... We and their legal teams are some of the main characters in the film who are the, the heroes really of this story, I think, who defended these women and were publicly saying North Korea, uh, North Korea orchestrated this assassination. These women did not know what they were doing. And so the lawyers recognized that everybody on the ground was saying these women are going to be executed. Malaysia is out to convict these two women. The judge, there's not a jury system in Malaysia. The judge assigned to this trial clearly thought they were guilty and that they were lying. So everyone was expecting an execution, I think, including their lawyers, although they, they would never say that publicly. So they took the opportunity of a documentary as a way to put their defense out there publicly because it wasn't going to come out in the trial. And so... We had an agreement with them that if the, if the women were convicted, which it appeared they were going to be, in the small appeals process before they were executed, we would release this film that, tr that showed the true story of how they were recruited in hopes that maybe it could save their lives, that maybe it could create an international outcry before they were hanged uh, to save their lives. And I, I don't want to ruin what happens in the film. Yeah. I, think I won't give away the ending. Yeah, I think, well, I think that's the benefit of making a film like this. And, you know, maybe the only benefit of Trump in my, in my personal life is no one knows what happened to them because the last four years were so crazy in the U.S. Uh, but that, I think, is why the legal teams were willing to hand over everything to us. I think it was a desperate measure saying, if you can get this information out there widely, it might save our clients' lives because it's not looking good for them. Now, we see the young women in training videos doing things like going up to strangers from behind and putting their hands over their eyes, the kind of things that kids do when they say, guess who? Is that kind of prank video popular in Asia? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, ultimate, the ultimate irony for me is in one of our final scenes, which I don't want to ruin when 
um, you know, everything has come to a conclusion and we're at an airport with one of our main subjects playing all over the screens are our prank videos right above her in the footage, mm-hmm. you know. And so uh, prank culture in Asia is it, it's, 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 it's a large phenomenon, you know. And like I said, Duan Qi Huang was already a prank actress and we have many of those videos in the film. It's kind of like a viral sensation there, just as it is is here, but I think it's more popular um, in that part of the world. So, you know, it, it might seem, it might seem crazy to um, an American to hear like, Oh really? You thought you were playing a prank when you assassinated someone. But when you realize that that culture is sort of ubiquitous, that practice is kind of everywhere, you know, like uh, one of our, one of our characters in the film is a Malaysian journalist named Hadi Azmi. And he said, you know, even at the DMV, while you're waiting to get your driver's license here, that's what they're playing on the monitors, our prank videos to entertain people. Um, so while it might seem um, strange and a little bizarre to us, it's, it's everywhere there. Who had they been told Kim Jong-nam was? Uh, just another actor, a part of the prank? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, throughout the what we call the prank circuit of them playing pranks all over, you know, Asia, and like you said, we have videos of many of them because they were being filmed or they were being played um, in public places. They were sometimes doing it on unsuspecting targets. So, you know, it might be, uh, you know, a regular man and his mom in an airport that they play a prank on and everyone laughs. Um, but oftentimes they were told that they were working with actors who were in on the prank. And so we traced that text message. You know, Duan was in her hotel room the night before uh, the assassination. And we have the text messages where they're telling her, like, you need to be very firm the way you touch his eyes tomorrow because this man is, you know, they said he's a fat man, he'll be bald, but he's, he's in on the joke. Um, and so he wants you to touch his eyes very hard so that he acts startled more. Um, so they were preparing the woman for kind of a, a behavior, which Kim Jong-nam has when his face is touched. You know, it's grainy CCTV footage, but you can see that he jumps back when it happens and he's terrified. But the women were prepared that the actor that they were going, I'm saying actor in quotation marks, that they were going to be with on video that today was going to behave in a terrified way. So they thought he was in on the joke to the point where if you believe them, both women did not even know that someone had been assassinated. You know, these they, they went back to their- Until hotel. they were arrested. Until they were arrested, they claim that they never even knew that a political assassination had happened. You know, they had not been- reading the news. The news took a few days to come out. So they didn't even know that somebody had died from their actions until they were arrested. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Assassins all laughing Ryan White, whose latest film is called Assassins. Uh, there are a lot of characters in this story. There's a group of eight North Korean men who were involved in the plot. 
And they're given names like the mastermind, the godfather, and the chemist, and others are identified as James, Mr. Chang, and Mr. Y. Do we even know their real names? We do, yeah. They, they were identified by Interpol soon after the assassination. I mean, the ultimate irony is this, that this happened in an international airport. So these people were moving through the international airport having to use passports. And so, uh, like you said, there were, there were six North Korean operatives in the airport at the time that it happened. Um, and there were two others kind of orbiting, one being a chemist who uh, many people presume is the one that created uh, the VX in Malaysia. And immediately after the assassination happens, you know, the women get in taxis and go home, and you can trace these six North Korean operatives um, going into separate parts of the airport and undisguising themselves. You know, they go into bathrooms and one comes out wearing something completely different. His facial hair is gone. He's wearing a hat and he goes off and they meet uh, two other North Korean operatives who, who are living in Kuala Lumpur, who work for North Korean's national airline called Air Corio, and give them documents to fly this very circuitous path home. I think they took five flights to get back to North Korea. So you can literally watch them move through the airport, get their tickets, move through security. They all reconvene, um, the, the, the five or six of them, and they, they fly home and therefore completely evade prosecution by the Malaysian authorities. Meanwhile, they have left the women in Kuala Lumpur as sitting ducks um, waiting to take the blame. Now, the mastermind is identified as Hanamori, which sounds Japanese, but is he North Korean? Uh, yeah, so they're all they're all North Korean. And, you know, the names that they were using, the women were were aliases, obviously, and the women with the women thought they were Japanese. But, uh, yeah, Hanamori is often seen as the mastermind. There's a man named Ojong Gil who's seen as mm. Sort of the, the Godfather. Godfather. These are, yeah, these are all these are all sort of cinematic terms, but they're coined by the journalists who were trying to figure out what the hierarchy was of these men. Um, you know, none of none of those things are their are their real names. Um, you know, Hanamori, I believe, means uncle, um, and that was you know he was the oldest man. Um, he was the oldest man as part of this supposedly Japanese YouTube team. So. Uh, you know, those are the names that they told the women. Those are the names that they're using to text the women. Um, but their their real names are are public because their their passports were scanned as they left the Malaysian as they left left the Kuala Lumpur airport. And then, as I mentioned, James, Mr. Y, and Mr. Chang, uh, the recruiters, right? Were they also uh, present at the airport when this happened? Well, James is kind of the, the sort of boogeyman in our film. He totally disappeared. But, yeah, he is the one that initially recruited Siti Aisha and then sort of disappeared. Mr. Chang and Mr. Y were the ones that were definitely in the airport and are kind of seen as the lowest on the totem pole. They're, they're literally the ones that, that put the VX into Siti and Duan's hands. Hanamori and Ojong Gil are kind of seen as the bosses that are watching from afar. And you'll get to see that in the film. And they're on cell phones, presumably rep reporting back that the you know mission has been accomplished. But Mr. Chang and Mr. Y are the ones actually side by side with Siti Aisha when it happens. And yes, both of them are two of the ones that left immediately after the attack that, that changed their clothes and just redisguised themselves 
uh, and exit Malaysia back for North Korea to safety. With the help of the North Korean uh, embassy employees. Yeah, I mean, and that's a huge part of our film is those people did not leave Malaysia immediately after it happened, and they were they were immediately identified. So that's an embassy employee uh, of, of the North Korean embassy in Kuala Lumpur and a guy named Ri Jong-chol, who, as you said, is known as the chemist, who presumably may have made the VX in Kuala Lumpur. And our film... It, it, it delves into sort of like the diplomatic geopolitical world, especially between Malaysia and North Korea, because what ends up happening in the months after the assassination is uh, in, in Pyongyang, they, they have a Malaysian embassy there. They start holding the Malaysian, uh, the Malaysian embassy workers and their families hostage until they send these two men back to North Korea to safety. And there ends up being this hostage standoff and kind of a trade between Malaysia and North Korea, where the two men who are obviously a part of this assassination are also sent back to safety. And they send Kim Jong-nam's body and the laptop and the cell phone that was on him at the time back to North Korea as well, which is absolutely insane when you think about that Kim Jong-nam was living in exile. He wasn't even a North Korean citizen anymore, but they gave the body and all of the evidence back to North Korea. And everybody questions why Malaysia would allow that to happen when a, when a trial is ongoing and that evidence was paramount to defending the women. Were Sidi and Duan uh, arrested immediately? Well, this is sort of the, the sad reality of what the North Koreans did to the, did to the women. Duan was told you know, she was, she was an outsider. She wasn't living in Kuala Lumpur, so she was staying at a hotel. She was told the next day, you need to return to the airport, and we're going to play more pranks, and we're going to pay you for the one mm. you played yesterday. So we traced that footage as well, which is, you know, I think a total, uh, I think that's video evidence enough that Dewan is not a political assassin. The idea <laughs> that, that the woman who just pulled off an international political assassination is going to return to the scene of the crime the next day, wearing many of the same clothes, undisguised, and just walk around the airport for two hours. You can see her walking around. You can see her on her cell phone. She's trying to call Mr. Y, who's her handler, who told her to come back. His number has been disconnected that, by that point. She's text messaging him. She's getting undelivered responses. And meanwhile, the entire world is looking for this woman the police are in the Malaysian airport investigating the assassination, and they're looking at the footage of her saying, like, oh, my God, that is the woman that, that assassinated mm. Kim Jong-nam yesterday. So she gets arrested at the airport at the scene of the crime the next day. And then Siti was traced very quickly. They, they were able to trace what car picked her up, which, which taxi driver that took her home. And they led her to her, uh, she was living in a hotel sort of massage parlor at the time. And they, that led to her. And like I said, when the police arrived at her door, she told them everything about what had happened the previous day because she did not know someone had died to the point where she was telling the police officers when they told her someone had died, like, oh, this is part of a prank show. Where are the cameras? And they had to show her newspaper headlines saying mm. a political figure had been assassinated before it settled with her that she had been tricked. So they've been they were charged with murder. Isn't the, the punishment for murder in Malaysia a mandatory death 
sentence. Uh, would they have been hanged if they were found guilty? Yes, they would have been hanged. You know, I think there's several crimes, murder being the most severe, but there's several crimes that have mandatory death penalty in Malaysia. And that, that's starting to change. You know, the government in Malaysia changed while we were making the film. But yes, if they if they had been convicted and, and you know, it's not a jury system there, it was this one judge who was going to decide their fate, um, they would have been hanged. And the judge does not seem to be very sympathetic to them. Uh, the uh, the film follows their trial. Uh, they were tried together. They were tried together, which is which is strange because they had two separate defense teams or would be strange compared to the American legal system um, because they had two se separate defense teams and they had two separate cases. But, yes, they were tried in the same courtroom. So it was both women sitting side by side in what they call a dock uh, you know, handcuffed, and uh, their cases were tried at the same time. And from the very beginning, it was very strange that the prosecution and the police in Malaysia um, seemed very out to convict the two women and very hell-bent on ignoring North Koreans, uh, North Korea's involvement to the point where they wouldn't even name the North Korean operatives in the courtroom. They wouldn't even use their names, the prosecution, and to the point where they weren't even willing to call Kim Jong-nam Kim Jong-nam, he had been traveling under a fake passport, which he always did. Uh, so he was traveling under a very generic passport name, which was Kim Chol. And so throughout the trial, they called the victim Kim Chol. Um, and so it, it was very weird that they seemed to be trying to uh, avoid the politics in all ways that, that this was North Korean in any way. They were trying to really relegate it um, you know, or narrow the scope to all that matters is that a victim died, regardless of who he is, and these two women performed that act. And anything larger than that um, doesn't matter, and therefore these women are guilty and they need to be executed for their crime. Were you in Kuala Lumpur uh, during the trial? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've spent... Is that Kuala when you Lumpur had started making the film or had you started it earlier? We started making the film just as the trial was beginning. Mm. Um, and so, you know, went like in late 2017, when that journalist approached me and we went over to Kuala Lumpur, uh, the trial was just starting um, and the trial lasted forever. I mean, it lasted, I think, uh, I think it was about two years from beginning wow. to end. So my life for the last few years has mm. been, you know, and trials are unpredictable. I've made, tri I've made many films about trials in the U.S. and I always say I'm never going to do another one because they move at a glacial pace and they're always unpredictable. So to compound that with a Malaysian trial where it takes me 30 hours to get there and two long haul flights, that led to a very unstable life for the last two years because we would find out at a moment's notice a ruling is going to come in and I would have to try to get there in time with my team um, to cover it. So we spent, you know, I would say almost every one to two months we were flying to Kuala Lumpur or to Indonesia or Vietnam, where the women were from, um, to cover different parts of this story. And they were imprisoned the whole time, held in separate cells. But didn't they become friends while they were there? They yeah, hadn't known each other before. Yeah, if you believe them, um, you know, and I always want to say that they had no idea who each other were. You know, they didn't even speak the same language. They both kind of speak broken English um, as their common denominator. Uh, but, yeah, the women were in solitary confinement in a Kuala Lumpur prison for two years. And, you know, our film isn't all um, 
danger and espionage and, um, you know, geopolitical webs. I think, like, at the heart of it, I kind of see it as almost like a love story, you know, and I don't, I'm, I don't mean love romantically. I mean in a, in a platonic friendship way that these two women who did not know one another um, and ended up in these extraordinary circumstances that only the other one would understand um, form this bond. And, you know, they were in solitary confinement, but they were on the same hall of the prison um, and they had nobody else to talk to. Uh, and so it's very like Shawshank Redemption in a way where they forged this friendship in the prison um, by speaking broken English to one another, learning more English from their lawyers or from their guards and being able to communicate more with one another. And, you know, they were one Muslim, one's Christian, but they would pray together before their meals. And um, although they never actually got to sit face to face, minus um, side by side in a courtroom, handcuffed, uh, they left that experience incredibly bonded to one another. Um, and again, I don't want to ruin the end of the film because there's a few huge surprises at the end mm. for both of them. Um, but I think they will live the rest of their lives only being the only person that understands the other one. Um, but, and that well, you, you just revealed that they were uh, they weren't given the death penalty, but that's a whole other matter. Um, you said that they had separate legal teams. Uh, were they were the, uh, the the lawyers hired by the governments of Vietnam and Indonesia? Yes. So their their legal teams were incredibly talented legal teams. Thankfully, they're some of the best criminal defense attorneys in uh, in Malaysia. And so one of them represents the Indonesian embassy in Kuala Lumpur. So anytime an Indonesian is charged with something that would lead to capital punishment, this legal team inherits that case. Um, and so Siti Aisha was very lucky in that way. And then likewise, Wan Ti Huang, the Vietnamese woman, um, the Vietnamese embassy hired uh, a criminal defense team to defend her. So, you know, it wasn't like they got public defenders, which isn't even a system in Malaysia. They got like really high level defense teams that were um, incredibly brave in the wake of the threat coming from North Korea. Like they were kind of the only speak people speaking publicly at the time saying North Korea did this. Our clients didn't. And, you know, these are people that are not protected, that walk the streets of Kuala Lumpur, where where the North Korean embassy has a presence. And for two years, they were shouting from the rooftops that this was a North Korean political assassination. So, yeah. you know, I do think they're kind of the real real heroes of this story, um, if there are any. Without revealing the ending completely, these stories have somewhat different outcomes. Did that have to do with the fact that they were from different countries? Did the governments of Indonesia and Vietnam put pressure on the Malaysian government? And was the Malaysian government more receptive to one rather than the other? Yeah, I think it has less to do with their home country's relationships with Malaysia than it has to do with North Korea's relationships with their home country. So I know that's a little confusing, but if Indonesia and North Korea do not have a strong relationship, but Vietnam and North Korea do. You know, we saw the second summit with Trump and Kim Jong-un happened in Hanoi. Um, they're both, you know, Vietnam and, uh, and North Korea are both communist countries. And so the, the idea that uh, that Indonesia could exert more, they could 
they could operate more outside of the orbit of North Korea, and they could put more pressure on Malaysia without without jeopardizing their own relation their own relationship. And so, yeah, the way it starts playing out in the courtroom is that it seems like Indonesia is going to have more influence to save their countrywoman than Vietnam is going to have to save theirs. And that's all because of North Korea's power over those two countries or lack thereof. But the both governments did exert some pressure. In the end, yes. Yeah. Uh, this... you know, and yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, I don't think, I don't know if Vietnam, I think we're very lucky, and, and, and Duan especially is very lucky that the other woman was not Vietnamese or Chinese, that it was a country that doesn't have a close relationship with, with North Korea because Indonesia was putting on so much pressure that Vietnam um, was looking very bad um, in, the, in, in the public light by not doing the same thing for their woman. So the only way Duan Thi Huang, the Vietnamese citizen, was going to be saved was if Indonesia saved their citizens first. This story has more than a dozen characters. It takes place all over Asia, from North Korea to Malaysia, with stops in Vietnam, China, Japan, and Indonesia. Were you worried along the way about how you'd be able to turn the whole thing into a coherent narrative, which, by the way, you have? I mean, I think the, the film w was fascinating to watch, even if it wasn't a documentary. It would have worked well as just as a, as a thriller. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the word we often use with thriller. You know, it felt... Uh, it felt like a global espionage thriller. I mean, we felt that we felt that firsthand in just in making it. It was not it was not a comfortable film to make. We felt afraid uh, while we were making it. And so, yeah, I have a brilliant editor named Helen Kearns, who was always back in Los Angeles, you know, receiving the footage that I was sending home. And she was, she's, she's the, the, if there's any coherency to my film, it's all a credit to her because she was piecing together this insane and unbelievable web in a way that hopefully will make a lot of sense to the audience when they watch it, that it's finally pulling the curtain back on this story and saying, you know, this is exactly how it went down and we're going to connect all the dots for you. So how can people see it? I mentioned earlier that it'll be available in select theaters on December 11th, which is next week, and then available on demand on January 15th, 2021. How is that working? Well, I, I guess it'll depend on what happens over the next uh, eight days on how many theaters can actually be open. You know, I'm, I know I'm in Los Angeles where they're not open, but uh, there is this sort of new phenomenon this year um, uh, that's called virtual cinema. So people... Mm -hmm. Uh, if, if theaters aren't open, people will be able to go to their local theaters' websites, or we have a website called assassinsdoc.com. Um, and it's kind of an incredible thing this year because people from all over the country that might not have access to a local theater that plays indie films or documentaries can um, go on these local theaters' websites, support those local theaters that are that are struggling, and watch it virtually and buy a ticket to it. So um, I hope people will do that on December 11th, and then. Like you said, it will come out on demand and be available for, for rentals on you know, Amazon and iTunes and all the others on January 15th. And uh, I want to thank you so much for being a great guest, Ryan White, his film Assassins. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Leonard. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview. If you're new to this program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, letitlocateatlarge.com. And if you'd like to comment on any of our shows or just want to say hello, you can reach me by email. My address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off, uh, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes to ask you for your support for WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners who have the the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. Do it right now. Do it during the show if you can uh, to keep the unique in-depth content that we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We really need your help to keep this historic station the only one on the New York City dial that's completely listener sponsored on the air. We don't um, take uh, we don't take funding from foundations. We don't take grants. Um, we don't run ads as a lot of public radio stations do. We depend 100% on our listeners. And right now, during this pandemic, that has made our situation a bit tenuous. But uh, I, I, I hope that you um, consider what we try to do on this show valuable and worthwhile and uh, would want to keep it going. So, again, All you need to do is call 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org to keep Leonard Lopate at large coming to you on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and keeping this station thriving. Uh, And from all of us at the station, to everyone who has contributed so far, thank you so much. We hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when we'll talk about another film uh, with filmmaker Wow Wu who'll discuss his documentary, 76 Days, which is set in the early days of the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, China. And we'll see you then.